Good morning, Community Bible Church. This morning we are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. Today we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week, Aaron led us through chapter 2, talking about spiritually revealed things. We explored how knowing God is not a matter of human discovery, but divine revelation. A revelation granted by the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth about God to his believers. So today we're moving on to chapter 3. Please join me there in your scripture journals or your Bibles if you'd like to follow along in the text. The text today examines a problem of divisions within the Corinthian church. But this problem stemmed from the Corinthians' worldly wisdom. And that led them to having an improper perspective of Christian ministry. So my title for today's sermon is uh, Having a Proper Perspective for Unity. Turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our first main point is that we need to have a proper perspective of pastors, that those in the Christian ministry are mere servants, but it is God that gives the growth. So let's pick it up at the start of chapter 3. I'll Start with the first nine verses. We'll end up reading the entire chapter, but we're starting with the first nine verses. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul established the church in Corinth around 50 A.D., and he spent about a year and a half there. It's believed that Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was written around 59 A.D., so several years had elapsed from when he had left the church that he had planted there until he wrote this letter. Now, this was an adequate period of time that Paul certainly felt that he had a reasonable expectation that there would be spiritual growth in the Corinthian church during that time. And when he heard reports about their condition, reports of strife and jealousy and division, Paul knew he had to have a word with them. Paul starts this section of the letter by addressing them as brothers. Now, I find this both true and comforting, true in the sense that we are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ and united with Christ as a family. But it's also comforting with the assurance from Paul that he's thinking of them in a familiar way as brothers. 
Yet Paul immediately follows this with words of chastisement and rebuke, maybe even a little condescension. He's essentially calling them a bunch of babies, at least babies in a spiritual sense, and such that in spite of the years, the Corinthians had not progressed from feeding on the most basic spiritual doctrines. Paul associates this lack of progress with being merely human, In verse 1, he says, they are of the flesh. If you have some other Bible translations, it may say worldly, or it may say carnal. Now, the Greek word for of the flesh is is probably rendered best of the flesh. In verse 1, Paul is using the word sarkinos, which means flesh, but that also has a connotation of weakness. Paul uses a slightly different word in verse 3. Rather than sarkinos, he uses the word sarkikos, which still means of the flesh, but has more of meaning of willful weakness. They loved the things of the world so much, and it was continuing to have an influence on them. They were prideful. The Corinthians exalted their own human wisdom over God's wisdom. This flesh, this worldliness, this weakness is manifesting in the church through division with different factions arising within the church. Now, back in chapter 2, Paul was distinguishing between those who knew God and those who did not. He referred to them as the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man does not receive the knowledge of God because they are folly to him. But the spiritual man understands them because they are things that are spiritually discerned. Now, the Corinthians were believers, but they're still stuck somewhere in between the two, believing but still worldly. I believe this rebuke from Paul probably cut to them very deeply as they were proud of their wisdom. They thought that their factional, factionalism pointed to a spark, sharp spiritual perception, but in fact it actually pointed to a spiritual poverty. They were still very much worldly. So how can believers still be worldly? As believers, we're still influenced by our old nature. That old nature won't overtake us, but it's a continuing battle that we must fight. We need to battle to become spiritual, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit rather than being controlled by the flesh. The Corinthian church was losing that battle, or perhaps in the flesh they weren't really battling at all. So Paul has called them infants. Now who doesn't love a newborn infant? They are so precious. When a new baby comes into the world, it just makes everyone joyful. And so it is with infants in Christ. When a person recognizes their sin, their need for a Savior, they repent from their wicked ways and accept the free gift of salvation by the grace of our Lord through faith in Him, we rejoice. It's a cause to celebrate and to welcome them in. There's a beautiful sense of new life in the church especially when a new believer is in their midst. Indeed, it truly is a new life, as the believer had passed through death of his old self into new life in Christ. As a church, we delight in bringing up these new believers into a full, mature, spiritual adulthood. But the parent that has the joy of a newborn will find it distressing if years go by and that child still has all the characteristics of the day that they entered the world. The babe, that, the babe in Christ that was a spiritual delight initially 
became a disappointment without growth. They just no longer were a joy to the church. When these infants in Christ should have grown and already be out doing the good work of converting others and building up others, instead the church was consuming much of its energy, just feeding and nourishing these immature believers. They were of little use to Christ, to their fellow Christians, even to themselves. So what are some of the signs that we see in those that are still worldly? In verse 3, Paul points to jealousy and strife. The Corinthians were showing pride in their tribe, rivalry, even demonstrating a fondness for infighting. Instead of being useful and taking the fight against Satan, they'd chosen instead to be butting heads with each other. Instead of unity, they opted for separation. Instead of peaceably loving their brothers, they opted for estrangement for the people of their own church. Okay, I've described some of the things that we see in the immature believers. How can we be certain that we ourselves are not immature? Well, in addition to not having those immature characteristics, take a a look at the few characteristics of the mature believers. Mature believers want to be in fellowship with God's people, and they have a love for each other. They have a love for God's word, and they desire for true intimacy with God, to really know him. They desire to be obedient to God's commands, and they have a concern for their personal holiness. They will be a witness to Christ and have a desire to glorify God. The church of mature believers with these characteristics will bear much fruit and prove to be disciples of Christ. I believe that the problem of perpetual immaturity can still be a huge problem in the worldwide church today. I've known many Christians where it's easy for them to come week after week and sit through a sermon, but never really change their lifestyle or grow spiritually. It's easy to become complacent, to be satisfied with our own spiritual lives because we feel we're in a secure relationship with God. People are saved, or at least they think they are, and so that's just good enough for them. They're happy to go to church once a week, but still loving their worldly lives. Their sensitivity to spiritual things are dulled by their worldly influences. They may hang around as part of the church and always seem to be learning, but never really growing and maturing. I know myself that it's easy to become complacent. It's so easy to love the comforts of this world or just be distracted by by it all and be satisfied with my own level of understanding and maturity but I know that I must press forward no matter how much I've studied and learned I know I need to dig deeper into God's word I know that I must be discipled by others in order to continue to grow spiritually from the perspective of the church itself what should we the church do about immature believers that are part of the church Well, we feed them. Worldly Christians are still in the care of the church. We continue to nurture them with kindness and the word, to lovingly disciple them, and pray for their spiritual growth and their sanctification. They may not be ready for the deep spiritual truths, but we will encourage them with as much truth as as they are prepared for. 
Paul's chastisement of the Corinthians should cause us each to do a little self-evaluation. Are we growing and maturing, or are we still kind of worldly? We can make a decision to pursue God with our whole heart, to become more Christ-like all the time, to do more than just to come to church and listen. Starting in verse 6, Paul begins to explain how we should think of those in ministry by using an agricultural metaphor. Now, I grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa, so I have a special appreciation for that. We tilled the soil and we planted. But in faith, we waited for God to provide the spring rains, to provide the necessary watering. In faith, we waited for God to warm the soil and germinate the seed. And in faith, we waited to see those extremely straight rows of corn and soybeans. We planted our fields in faith, but God gave the growth. Likewise, Paul is making it clear to the Corinthians in verses 6 and 7 that it is God that gave the growth. The Corinthian church remained full of their worldly wisdom, and in that wisdom judged for themselves who they best saw fit to follow. But Paul makes it clear that both he and Apollos are merely human. They both work as servants of the Lord, as the Lord had assigned to them. Paul's use of the metaphor that they were merely servants, basically unskilled farm labor, reinforces to the Corinthians that they should not boast in these leaders. After all, a servant was not someone who carried a great deal of authority, as they were probably in that society in a very low social position. In this way, Paul's kind of ridiculing their misplaced loyalties. Paul notes in verse 8 that they will be both rewarded for their labor. Now, I think there's a couple things going on here. The first, the idea that they're going to be compensated for their work reinforces to the Corinthians that they are merely laborers. Like someone who receives a paycheck rather than someone that's funding the payroll. And also this tells the Corinthians that ultimately the evaluation of the effort of Paul and Apollos is up to God, not to them. But consider Paul. Wasn't he worthy? He preached. He planted churches. He spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But remember, Paul started out as a persecutor of the church. Paul was merely a man. But God worked in him for the increase. And consider Apollos. What do we know about him? Paul states that he watered. He was nurturing the Corinthian church that Paul had already started. But that's not the first we heard about Apollos. He shows it up in uh, Acts chapter 18. There, Apollos is described as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and authority uh, and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He sounds like a pastor I'd really like to hear. Acts chapter 18 goes on to say that he spoke boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they pulled him aside to explain the way of God more adequately. So even Paul's, he sounds like he's smart and well-gifted, but he wasn't prepared for the ministry that he ultimately later performed, not until God worked in Priscilla and Aquila to help further prepare him. Apollos was merely a man, merely a servant but it was God that gave the increase. Now, if you'll indulge me a moment, I'm going to skip ahead very briefly for a glimpse at verse 21, where in addition to Paul and Apollos, he mentions Cephas. 
Uh, That's Peter. Now, consider Peter. Surely he's an apostle that was worthy. Peter's one of the closest men to Christ. He knew him well. But Peter was also the one that denied Jesus three times. And take a quick look at back at Matthew 16, at verse 15, when Peter and Jesus were talking, Jesus asked Peter, what, are, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. You see, Cephas, or Simon Peter, was merely a man, but God revealed himself to him and worked in him. Now I had in mind here, I'd provide further examples of more current megachurch pastors that had some great fall, but as you can know, there's many examples you can find out on the internet, and you've probably heard many of them already. But it's easy to dismiss those. They already had their fall. We're talking about Paul and Apollos here who had not had some disgrace and got removed from ministry. The efforts of Paul and Apollos would have been futile unless God had given the growth. Therefore, we should have no division, no lifting up of Paul or Apollos or anyone else for special headship, since they are both appointed by the Lord and they point to the Lord. To lift up any Christian leader to too high a status is to ignore that they are powerless to do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to keep this esteem of the Christian leader in proper context, though. Paul and Paul's were not nothing compared to other leaders. But when they measure up to God, they indeed become nothing. My first main point was that we must have a proper perspective of pastors. The good work and valuable work of the church planter, the evangelist, the pastors, the preachers, the teachers are all done only as work of a servant. The meaningful fruit of their labors is only because of God's work being done. Therefore, we do not need to have a special loyalty to a pastor or a Christian leader, but our one true meaningful allegiance should be to the Lord. And as anyone in Christian ministry, it should affect our attitudes. If we're serving in Christian ministry, our attitude towards ourselves in ministry, should be one of humility. We should not seek credit for ourselves since we are merely a tool. We should remember that we are all united as one, working toward the one same goal and not be jealous of one another. Our, Our attitude towards those that we minister to should be one of humility as well. The members of the church are not ours. In verse 9, Paul says that we are God's field. We are God's building. We cannot change up these people through sheer force or willpower or our own wisdom. It's all glory to God only, for he is the one causing all the growth and truly behind the change in people. As people in Christian ministry, we must rely on God and pray to him to affect the change in his people. In verse 9, Paul states that we are God's field, God's building. He's about to make a uh, change in the reference from an agriculture metaphor to an architectural metaphor. As we move on to verse 10, 
I'd like to introduce my next main point, that we need to have a proper perspective of the church. The Spirit resides in us as one holy temple. I'll pick it up at verse 10, and I'll go through verse 17. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, he has, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but you will still be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So in this section of the text, Paul gets into a discussion using the metaphor of architecture, but it's towards the end, in verse 16, that he identifies for the Corinthians what he's actually talking about. So in order for us to properly frame this in the entirety of this part of the message, I'm going to start with verse 16 before working through the rest of the text. The context of the you in verse 16 is not an individual you, but a collective you. He's talking about the church as a whole. If you happen to be using an NIV translation, you'll see that it says that God's spirit dwells in your midst. I suspect that in the church today we can fairly easily accept Paul's statement where he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We kind of become familiar with this text, or at least this concept. We've heard it before. But think about what those Corinthians must have thought about this. Paul's question, do you not know, seems likely to be a bit of a rebuke, perhaps indicating to the Corinthians that they should have already known this from Paul's earlier teachings. If so, it seems that the full impact had failed to sink in with them, and maybe this was one of those meat things that Paul was talking about. Consider the matter from the perspective of the Corinthians. The Christian church was just a tiny sect paling in comparison to the larger and more well-established Jewish community. The temple, as they knew it, was the temple in Jerusalem. It was an awesome building, a building where they go on an annual pilgrimage and to, with the intent to meet God and where the priests would hear from God. It's where the sacrifices were made. According to the scriptures, the foundation of the temple belonged to creation itself. And the temple would last forever. The well-being of the entire earth depended on the one that sat on the throne in that temple. And from that throne, the destinies of the nations would be determined. So, 
Paul's statement that they themselves are God's temple, that God actually dwelt in them, must have seemed astonishing, a matter difficult to grasp. That brings me to my second main point. To have a proper perspective of Christian ministries, we must understand that we, the church, are his holy temple. Let's keep that in mind as we further examine this section of Paul's letter. Having established that the architecture that Paul is talking about is the church, let's go back to verse 10. I'd like to first point out that Paul is consistent. In verse 10, he again points to God for the work that is being carried out. Paul is not going to let us forget that part of the message. In verse 10, Paul rightly proclaims that he has laid a foundation as a wise builder. In making the statement that he laid the foundation as a wise builder, it's not that Paul's touting himself as wise. Paul's preaching the word of God, preaching about the redemptive work of Christ, about the crucifixion and the resurrection. He has laid a firm foundation, and that foundation is none other than the Lord Jesus. So when he is touting laying the foundation as a wise builder, it's that foundation itself that is the wisdom that he's talking about. Jesus is the foundation of the church, so if anyone were to lay, attempt to lay a different foundation, then what they laid down would no longer be the church. Now, I'm not an architect, but it doesn't take, to, take an architect to make some observations of significance about architecture. First, the foundation is the first part of the building, and so it is with Jesus, the first and foremost part of his church. Next, a foundation is a support for everything that's built on it. And so there is no church except that which gets all its support from Jesus. If any group of people lean on anything other than Jesus for salvation and for eternal life, then they're not a church. There's been a great deal of development going on in the vicinity of CBC. I've seen recently foundations laid just a few blocks from here. Now, I don't look at that foundation and say, well, they built a foundation. No, I say, well, it looks like another house is going up here. And so we can conclude that if a foundation is laid, there's an expectation we are going to build something up on that. Another construction observation. If I see a foundation, I don't say it's going to be a 40 by 40 foot house if the foundation is 30 by 50. See, the, what's built up is going to look like that foundation. It's going to be respective of that foundation. Since our foundation is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the church should be looking like him. Paul mentions six building materials, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. He's got these laid out in decreasing order of quality. The wood, the hay, the stubble, these could be building material. We use a lot of wood in construction these days. Well, the last time I went to Home Depot, it looked like I'd need some gold or silver to get a two-by-four. Paul mentioned also hay and stubble, and that kind of reminds me of back in Exodus when the Israelite slaves were making bricks and straw. So it seems even in Paul's day that could still have been a common building material. So what do we build with common building materials? Well, we build common things. We build, we build houses. But 
the gold, silver, and precious stone are materials that we would not build common, ordinary houses for. But these are materials that we would build a temple for. Consider all the precious materials that were used in Solomon's temple. There were tons of gold and silver. In the Old Testament, the physical temple was a very special place. The way it was constructed and the way it was furnished was very well detailed. The temple was the primary place where God revealed himself. And it was where God talked to the priest. It was also where the offerings were made to God. Today, as Paul explained, we the church are his temple and he dwells in us. Not only the local church, not only CBC, but we're also part of the universal church, the church of every believer. And so we should therefore take care to build up the church, the holy temple, with the very best materials. The gold, silver, precious stones. That's the preaching and teaching dependent on the true word and the pure word of God. Building with gold and silver means spreading the gospel news with no worldliness mixed in, nothing to diminish its impact. Those that use the wood, hay, and stubble are those that preach Christ, but in such a way that it departs from the mind of Christ, and they insert their own worldly-influenced doctrines. In verse 13, Paul states, uh, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Just as the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble were figurative, so also is the fire. Fire simply means that God's going to put these things to the test. And within that testing, it's going to be revealed what materials were used. But in verse 13, what's that day? There seems to be some different thoughts here. Some think of it maybe just a passage of time, that over time the nature of what has been built will tell if the building is pure and solid or if it was built on poor worldly teaching, and it would not last. That may be a, new, a reasonable argument, as surely time does test things. But others believe that the day is the ultimate judgment upon Christ's return. And this seems more likely to me, based on the figurative language of the language of testing by fire. Either way, it's clear that ultimately there will be a time when the quality of the work will be revealed. The testing referred to in this context is not the testing of individual believers or believers versus non-believers or testing of the church itself, but it's the testing of the work of those that have been building up the church. The fire that puts the work to the test will further purify the gold and silver, making it even more beautiful. But for those that did not build well, there will be no reward. There will be nothing left. The fire that put the matter to the test will have consumed it all. That builder will be saved, but only as if the house caught fire and they ran out with nothing. Now, Paul doesn't specifically address here exactly what the great reward is that awaits those that have built well. But... It will be a reward knowing that you have done a work that is pleasing to God. What greater reward can anyone desire to hear than well done, good, and faithful servant? 
This building metaphor is concluded in verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So, for the good builder, God promises reward. For the poor builder, God promises no reward, but still allows them the assurance of salvation. But, for those that work against the church, actively seeking to take the name of Jesus into disrepute and turn people away from the church, working to destroy the church, God promises their destruction. So Paul encourages us to build well on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's directing this message specifically to the pastors and teachers and evangelists to build well, to build in such a way that it's, when it's tested, it's going to come through that fire and survive. But I think there's something for all believers, all within the church to reflect on. Are we allowing God to judge the works of the Christian pastors like Paul teaches us in verse 13? Or are we being like the Corinthians, judging which is our favorite to follow? And since we are one universal church built on the Lord Jesus Christ, we should all be aware of denominationalism in today's churches. The thinking that the Lord can't use other churches who aren't, are in our denomination or aren't just like us. We must not assume that others aren't really serving the Lord just because they aren't running in our circles. Now, there may be a solid biblical reason for separation from any church that isn't preaching solid doctrine, those that are not built on the foundation of Christ. But minor things like style of music or frequency of communion or even ethnic divisions shouldn't be differences that keep us separated from Christian unity. And although Paul's focus in these verses on the Christian ministry, aren't we all called to be in ministry to others? So how are we ourselves contributing to the building up of the church? Are we encouraging each other on in good works? Are we loving each other well, as the body of Christ is supposed to do? Are we treasuring and proclaiming an accurate interpretation of God's word? Are we spending our time and talent and resources building up that which will stand on the day of judgment? Or are we being being content to just get by, resting only in the hope that we're saved and investing into that which will be burned up? Does knowing God, does knowing that we are the temple and that he dwells in us, motivate us to live in a manner worthy of being that temple? Let's have the proper perspective of the church and remember that the Spirit resides in us as one holy temple. As we move on to the final verses of chapter 3, our final main point is that we need a proper perspective of the Lord's provision. Every believer shares corporately in the blessings of God. Picking it up at verse 18 through the end of the chapter, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, 
he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul brings up here as evidence of the folly of the worldly wisdom from the Old Testament, the book of Job, Job 5.13. It's the first speech of Eliphaz, where Eliphaz declared to Job that the Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. And just as multiple witnesses bear more weight, he also brings up another one. Psalm ninety-four, eleven, to further validate that th- thought. Psalm ninety-four, eleven says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. In fact, a, a properly nuanced interpretation of that passage from Psalm 94 is that he makes them futile. Now, I won't read the entire passage again, but I encourage you to re- read back and chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 18 to 31, where Paul talked extensively about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. It seems the Corinthian church and their worldly wisdom were attempting to think more of themselves, elevating their own worldly wisdom. And this was what was driving them for the separation to identify as following Paul or following Apollos. We should explore a bit about the worldly wisdom when When Paul condemned worldly wisdom, he wasn't necessarily a warning against learning about the world. We should indeed be about the math and sciences and learning such, but our viewpoint is misguided if we think things like science and philosophy should be used to examine the truth of God's word. Instead, we should be looking at God's word through the lens when we look at the science and philosophy of the world. Because of the folly of worldly wisdom, we should not boast in men, but seek godly wisdom. In the final verses of chapter 3, Paul reminds us that he and Apollos are servants of God and belong to all believers in Jesus Christ, not just to a faction. God did not provide the church, the hearers of the word, to Paul and Apollos, rather God provided and appointed Paul and Apollos for the hearers of the word. Then, Paul takes a bit of a leap, going from Paul and Apollos to Cephas to the world. The entire framework of creation, the entire handiwork of his hands, is ours if we are in Christ. If instead of remaining in Christ, we make these worldly things the desire of our hearts, then instead of having them, they have us. Paul includes life and death. Life is ours, and abundantly so, when we've received our new life in him. And even death as well. As we conclude our days and the physical death comes near, the Christian can enter it calmly, knowing that we are in Christ, who has the keys to death and hell, who has won the victory over death, Death no longer has to have a terror hold over us. It takes nothing from us which we aren't freely willing to give up. Things present 
Now, this speaks to a Christian's life and experiences in the present day. Whether we are in struggles or in prosperity, all things are worked for the good of those who love him. Or things to come. This speaks to our future, every known and unknown and uncertain thing, wherein we can rest in him. And ultimately, our eternal state, where we can truly rest in him. All things are ours. All things are ours. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And you are Christ. You are Christ. Our hearts should be glad that we are his possession, his property. Consider how he paid for us. He obtained us by a sovereign gift of God and by the price of his shed blood. We are his, and he can do with us what he wills. And just think about what he wills. We're the object of his love, and he has us as servants to do his work, as witnesses to bring hope into this world. And ultimately, we'll be at his side on that final day, the, time, the day when the testing of the gold and silver and wood and hay are determined. The final words of this chapter, and Christ is God's. Paul's demonstrating here that we are linked to God the Father through the Son. It says, all things are ours, and we are Christ. Christ is God's. In John 17, verses 9 to 10, Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All are mine, and yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified them. I think the key thing that Paul was conveying in these final verses to the Corinthians is that if they abandoned their divisiveness, if they abandoned their worldly ways, all these things could be theirs, and they will be Christ. But if they did not and remained on the path that they were on, then they wouldn't be. So my third main point was that we must have a proper perspective of God's provision Every believer shares corporately in the blessings of God. God didn't leave us hanging. He didn't leave us with only Paul. And if we turn from our worldly wisdom and seek God and his wisdom, he provides everything that we need, and we must remember that we have access to it all. There's no need for disunity that comes by thinking we are to follow just one. For a proper perspective on Christian ministry, we should keep in mind that those in ministry are merely servants, that it's God's that gives the growth. We need to remember that we, the church, are the holy temple of God and that we belong to him. And all things that we need for growth and our sanctification are made available to all believers. These are not gifts divided up but available to us all. We should therefore be building well in unity on the firm foundation of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Won't you pray with me? Father God, we come to before you with a grateful heart, thankful that we, the church, are your field, your holy temple. Purify us, sanctify your church to be holy, worthy of your presence. Lord, remove all things that would work to diminish the unity of your people, the church of all believers, and grow us all into mature believers, disciples of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.